Number 13. Three Cosmic Messages, Second Quarter, 2023. Daniel Duda. Before we begin our study today, Lucas is going to offer a prayer. Dear God in heaven, I just want to thank you for everyone here this morning. Thank you that we have this special time set aside to come here and get to know you better. I want to pray that you bless this discussion this morning. In your name, amen. Thank you, Lucas, and thank you, Elisa. Um, welcome and good morning, everybody. This is the last lesson in the quarter on three angels' messages, the three cosmic messages. And so we need your input from the whole quarter, what you have learned. And let's finish on a high note. For 13 weeks, people have been studying about the three angels' messages. And probably we should say that according to the text, there are three, three angels' apostrophe, message, rather than three angels' messages. So it's one message that has three parts. As you know, when the Revelation speaks about God, it always speaks about God in triads. Holy, 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 Lord, God, Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The angels give him honor and glory and power. So when God sends his last message, how many of them there will be? Three. Three messengers, but it's only one message which is eternal gospel. So we need to preach it in a way that it's a gospel. It's not putting people down. It's not putting us on a pedestal, but that it's putting God and his character. The other thing to remember is that in Revelation 12 to 14, which is one unit, and in the middle section of the book of Revelation, the dragon is introduced who acts in a certain way, and God reacts to that. And so you need to read three angels' messages in the context of Revelation 12, Revelation 13, and we mentioned that in the previous lesson. You are going to misunderstand the third angel's message if you don't see that the language is God's response to the language that the dragon and the beast were using to get people on their side. So God's response needs to be adequate and analogical, and he needs to react in a way that says, all right, if you choose that, but remember these are the consequences. It's amazing how many commentators automatically assume that what the three angels' message says, or the third one says, it's what God is going to do to people. But in the context of Revelation 12 to 14, it's clear that what the dragon does, God only reacts to that. And so you need to see the destruction that is brought as a result of the actions of the dragon. And we will mention that when we talk about the two harvests at the end of chapter 14. All right, Revelation 13 says that because of the activities of the false trinity or anti-trinity, the whole earth is deceived and everybody followed the beast. And then Revelation 14.1 says actually not everybody, because there was a group, certain Quality, 144,000, so a group of certain quality that followed the Lamb. And why is it that they followed the Lamb? Because they follow and preach and live according to this God's final warning, this final call that you have in Revelation 14, 12. And what happens as a result of that? Let's go to our memory text, Revelation 18, 1. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his splendor. What happens as a result of three angels' message? And let's use the singular, one message. 
being preached to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. So, once again, you have four groups, that means universal to everybody. So notice the another angel, the fourth angel, is not bringing another message. It's the consequence of the three angels and the message being preached. And the earth is illuminated with his glory. What does it mean? The whole earth is not in darkness anymore, but it's illuminated with God's glory. What is God's glory? Livius? God's glory is his character. And let's unpack it from Exodus. So when Moses says, I want to see you, God says to him, I am not a girl, nice to look at. And so when he passed him by, what does he say? The Lord, the Lord, God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So it all concerns how God treats people, how God comes across in relationships. So if the whole earth is illuminated by God's glory, what does it mean? Dan? I want to just follow up on the quotation that we just heard. I've been impressed that when Christ or God passed by Moses, he could have shown his face and really impressed. But he was so modest, I think, that he just showed his back. That was enough. And to me, that's again the reflection of just what he said, his demonstration of who he was. And so I think that whole picture of who God is, is physically shown in the way God chose to present himself to Moses, not the way he's pictured in Revelation with his fullness, with a sword in his mouth, just showed a very humble self, part of himself, and he knew that that was going to be enough for Moses. Yes, remember the context. The people messed up a big time. Moses is gone on the mountain, and they come to the conclusion that we don't know what happened to him, we don't know what happens with God who brought us out. We need some guidance, and so they put the gold together, and Aaron shapes it in the form of a calf, and so finally they have a visual representation, a golden calf, and they say, these are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. How God is going to respond? And what do people need after all these years in slavery and in darkness, where they didn't know much about God's character? When you have small children who have no clear boundaries, God needs to respond in a certain way. You need to react. Because if you don't, then you convey that nothing big has happened. So how do you convey that something serious has happened, and yet your character shines through that? And of course, in that context, then we can ask the question, and after having that revelation of God, and Exodus is clearly the background for three angels' messages. Interesting, it was never brought up in the lesson, but Exodus is the background for that. And then you have the revelation in the life and ministry of Jesus. And why do you need another picture in Revelation with a sword in his mouth and the brightness of his coming, etc.? Henry? I find this verse in Revelation 18.1 that the whole earth is full of his glory. An echo of what Jesus did, as is recorded in John 17, when he says that he has finished the work that his father has given to him. And in verse 22, he says, I have given them the glory that you gave me. So Jesus showed that glory, but didn't fill the earth. It filled that specific spot geographically because he was limited for that. So now I make the connection when he is predicting, you will do something bigger than I. And this is how the history at the end, is not limited to that little space in geography, but the whole earth is filled with God's glory. All the tribes of the earth are going to be blessed. The promise to Abraham is going to be fulfilled through what Jesus has done. Sherry? 
When I think of the glory of God filling the earth and coming to us, and that being the character, I think of the peace and the joy. There's something about being around somebody where you know you're totally safe, you're totally loved, and even with all your brokenness, you are special to them, you are accepted, you are part of the whole picture. And I think even times like we are together today, we love and trust each other, we're all working for good for others, there is that kind of peace already coming, that the heaven's starting now. And I think when you're around people like that, and God will be so much like that, we will feel safe, we will feel relaxed, we will feel joyful. And I think that filling the whole earth, that's going to be an exciting time where people in that atmosphere— After such a hard time of the end of the earth, when everything is so broken and so hard, that will be very exciting. We are loved. We are safe. We are together as a family. And we are going home. Okay, thank you, Olivius. So I haven't noticed this before, and I'm hoping it's something that's right. But do you notice here in chapter 18 that it's a pattern according to the three angels' messages? Because it starts off in verse 2, this angel that came down, he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen, Babylon the great. And then verse 4, it starts, Come out of her, my people. It's like this person, this angel, is giving the second and third angel's messages, which from the pattern means that he, the angel, is the first message. He is the creator of heaven, earth, sea, and springs of water in the first message. I worship him. Yeah, and then he pleased. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people. Is this like another, like a last-ditch effort? of God saying, hey man, here I am, come out. Yes, and if you look at the outline, when we'll talk about Tuesday, the Reformation continues, we'll speak about this. The good news is, where are God's people? Where are the majority of God's people, according to that verse 4? They are in Babylon, yet God still loves them. But because the Babylon is fallen, it does not have the grip on them anymore, they can come out of that. And that's the plea, you can go home again, you can leave Babylon. If you stay in Babylon, you don't stay there because you are kept by a higher power or military power. You stay there because you want to, either because you admire, you agree mentally, or because you feel there is no point of fighting against. You just comply. And of course, chapter 13 and 14 are a warning against mindless compliance, the consequences it brings. Terry? I'm not sure if this impression is correct, but I thought... At the beginning of this question, I thought I heard you ask a question about what it means for the whole earth to be enlightened enlightened with all the light. Illuminated. And I thought deception and lies flourish and hide in the darkness. And if the whole earth is lit or illuminated, then all of that deception and lies can't hide anymore. It becomes very clear, doesn't it? And then that can also provide a validation for all those people who thought, you know, something isn't right about that. I don't think, and I don't think I want to go down that path. I don't think I want to go that way. Kind of like the angels who stayed true to God in heaven, they still had questions. I mean, they stayed, but they still had questions. And if we illuminate the whole world, then nothing can hide anymore. Thank you, Terry. If you look at Revelation 13, 7, it was allowed that the beast, it was given to it, 
You see, again, you have the demonic passive to make war on the saints and to conquer them, so to use the power to destroy. And the authority, notice, authority was given over every tribe, people, language, and nation. And because the authority and the impact of the beast is over the whole earth, the response, the reaction will be good news needs to go to every tribe, people, language, nation. And the angel will come from heaven with great authority. So God matches that so that not the darkness and the deception covers the earth, but the glory and the knowledge of God's character so that people have an option. People can make an intelligent choice on which side they want to stand. Iris? Just a quick question. You said that the Exodus story is basically the template that helps us to unpack the understanding of Babylon and the three angels' message. And not only the Exodus story, but especially God's revelation to Moses after the golden calf incident at Sinai. There he says, I am merciful to thousands of generations, yet I punish, I will not leave guilty. They cannot get off the hook, but that is only to the third and fourth generation. So yes, there are consequences of the actions that you pass on to those dependent on you. You cannot break the evidence or jump out of the consequences of what you did. But God's grace is many times greater because if you count a generation, I don't know, 25 years, what age do people become grandparents? 1,000 generation is more than all the generation since the creation of the world. So God's grace is much greater. And of course, the whole way how he dealt with the nation. Yes, God is angry. Let's explain that. But ultimately, through that revelation of the character comes clearly, I'm here to help you. I understand you messed up, but I'm not going to leave you. Yet God needs to react some way so that these children who have been in the darkness of slavery in Egypt and misunderstanding of who God is because nobody taught them, they need to know, to use Graham's illustration, if you don't brush your teeth, mom will be greatly upset and you don't want that. So he needs to tell them, I am greatly upset, and you certainly don't want that, because they know when their supervisors are upset that he didn't fulfill the quota, they are in trouble. That's not what they want. But he is still teaching them and revealing the character so that he can take them on a journey that the big boss being upset is not the major problem they have. The major problem is what they do and their misunderstanding of his character. And that's why how he reveals himself. And then you will find that in Revelation, God says, and if you do this, you will drink the anger, unmixed, undiluted, and there will be fire and sulfur, and it will have consequences forever and ever and ever and a little bit more. So the language is there dealing with small children. Yet, if you understand that the devil acts and God reacts, it helps you or it prevents you from misunderstanding that language and reading that as a revelation of God's character that he's somehow vengeful and say, oh, you dare to go against me, so there you go. Let me show you. It's not punishment for the fact that they dare to stand up against him, but it's the consequence of living a lie and being deceived when God was offering so that they receive the love to truth. That was available. Back to the wedding garment parable. The problem was not that the man came in his own clothes. The problem was that the invitation came with the garment. The king paid for it. So you accepted the invitation, but not the garment. And that's the problem. You choose this. I want this. I don't want that. It's just that 
that context of Exodus 33 and Exodus 34, it's a major, you know, antecedent reading. We always speak about this. Not what does it say to me, but what it says to those who first heard it. And they are steeped in that language. And so they connect it with Exodus 33 and 34, with that incident. And if you don't connect that, you are going to misunderstand the three angels' messages. I guess what I'm starting to understand or take in is that I have been leaning towards seeing then Pharaoh and his oppressive system as Babylon. <laughs> But you're shifting basically to that later stage, which takes the focus away from an institution, a system, an oppressive power like Pharaoh was, to really oppressive, deceptive lies that entangle people to not understand who God is at the core. So you're shifting to this revelation of God in the face of unbelief and going with the lie, even though they should have already understood that God has their best interest in mind, that he deserves to be trusted, that he has proven himself faithful to them. And yet they still set up that golden calf. So you're going back to a later part in the storyline where I was still, yeah, wondering, is Babylon that oppressive system that... So is the story that we have in the Old Testament that is kind of the model for this call, is that the story of leaving the power of Pharaoh? But I think you're shifting to a later stage where it's about the revelation of God's character and the lostness that comes from being entangled in not understanding who God is at the core. So, thank you. And the book of Daniel makes that shift, so... At the end of Genesis, Egypt becomes the anti-kingdom, the power that's in the rebellion against God. But then Daniel shows that Egypt takes different reincarnations throughout the history of mankind. So once Egypt loses its grip on Israel, there are other powers that are going to molest them and make their life difficult. And so Babylon, it's another incarnation of Egypt and becomes the oppressive power. But you have that also in Genesis, as we said when we discussed the second angels message becomes the gate to heaven but it's the source of confusion i mean the aspiration was to become the gate to god and the result was confusion didn't deliver the system is broken second angel's message don't expect the solution from the institution from the system that is broken as you said in the previous lesson the solution is in the person not in the system not in the institution and the person is jesus henry you were mentioning making reference to When God displays his character, and as the story goes and is recorded in Exodus, you talk about how 1,000 generations of mercy, yet punishment is mentioned, and you did something that our listeners didn't get. The quotation, quotation marks. marks. Quotation marks in the air. So just wanted to make that reference that when you make your punishment, you did that the symbolic quotation marks so our listeners can know that there was a subtlety on that comment that it needs to be explained probably not at this moment so i wanted to call that comment first and that's an important because of the development of language so when you have the story of the fall god reacts in a john pauline would say duo directional way so in a way so there is god's blessing and there is god's curse so the blessing is something that promotes the well-being and the curse is something that limits the impact 
of evil. Now, you and I probably would not use the word curse today, yet inspired authors choose to use that word because for the people in that culture, in that time, in that place, geographically, that makes most sense. They understand it. And we said it in this context of Pinal many times. Remember, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, even our grandparents believed that if someone said a word, the cow would stop producing milk. They believed that somebody cursed the cow, you know, had the word had such a power over neighbor's cow that the reason why we have the problem is because of that word that was said. So you can understand that in that culture, in that mindset, the curse, the punishment was the word that they could relate to and they completely understood. Yet, as times and language develop and move, we would probably choose another word for that because of Greek influence. Let me understand the process. How does it happen? What is behind it? And then you realize that actually it's not God punishing, bringing artificial consequences, but the actions have their own consequences. But thank you for pointing it out. Yes, that's... (laughs) (laughs) what people don't see on an mp3 recording. (laughs) Right. And the next comment is following up what Peter was mentioning about this no more darkness, complete clarity, yet in the same style of the power of God, not absolutely overwhelming. There is opportunity for anybody to choose because John recorded that at the beginning of his gospel. We saw his glory, but not everybody saw it. They were even impressed to the point that they fall as death when they were taking him captive. And that didn't even allow them to see. So even God was so merciful to try to say, well, having eyes you don't see, I will try to give you a little bit more to give you one more chance. And they fall down and they refuse to love the truth. So this is, again, one more element, at least in my opinion, of the revelation of the character of God. That at the end of times, the full earth has been enlightened, is lit up completely, yet he makes an invitation, come out of them, just in case you have not seen the light. Yes, thank you. And we will pick up that when we speak about the glory filling the earth. So when some doubt it, after the resurrection, some believed, Jesus says, all authority, all exclusia is given to me. The angels descends with great Megale exousia, with great authority. What does it mean? Is he overwhelming them with authority? No, it means it's counteracting the deception so that people still can choose. How does God use his authority? Does he use the authority to intimidate? Or does he use the authority so that those who want to intimidate and abuse the authority can have a choice and say, you don't need to be scared of this authority. I have that too, even greater, even bigger. Just make a choice which is based on evidence. But we'll come back to that. To Ashley. So over time, as I've been attending here, I've learned so much about the patterns that are subtle, like hidden within like Hebrew, like it's poetry and the repeating, like you say, like the three and the four and all these, how these different represent. Another thing that's come out of that is seeing the models, like early Exodus is like a model for what happens in New Testament with Jesus coming and dying in the second 12 and how every time it gets a little more expanded and yeah, farther and farther out the definition with the first 12, there was like these very like strict rules and they were just, it seemed like just supposed to follow them. There wasn't 
a very deep understanding, I guess, from our perspective, now that we have more information, um, what was really going on. And then with the second 12, there was an expanded view, an expanded like meaning of what these laws, rules like represented, what the application was, what the principle was. <laughs> and then I think talking more about the third angel's message and revelation, I'm seeing almost like maybe like a third 12, or like we say, like 12 times 12, 144. So like the 12 of all 12. <laughs> and the ultimate message of the complete revealing of truth and that happens. So it's just like like completion. We talk about this a lot, but putting the whole Bible together and like seeing how the messages developed over time, that's something I feel like I picked up from going through Revelation again, which we keep doing and we learn something new every time. But yeah, it's really beautiful. <laughs> Good. Thank you, Ashley. Very perceptive from someone of younger generation. All right, let's go to First Thessalonians 5, 1 to 6. So how do you prepare for this? Sunday's lesson is preparing for the final crisis. So the older generation still remembers the book that was studied widely in Adventism. How do you prepare for the final crisis? How is that different from preparing for the second coming of Jesus? When can you say, I am prepared? Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When they say, There is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them, as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and there will be no escape. But you, beloved, are not in darkness, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light and children of the day. We are not of the night or the darkness. So then, let us not fall asleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. All right, let's unpack that. Concerning the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you have no need for me to write anything to you, because you are fully aware, you are in the know. Verse 4, you are not in darkness, you are all children of light, children of the day. Times and seasons, it's found three times in the Bible. It's found in Daniel 2.21. God is in charge of times and seasons. He sets up the kings and he brings down the kings. And then in Acts 1.7, where Jesus says to the disciples, it's not your job to know the times and seasons. Are you going to set up the kingdom now? Even after the resurrection, they are interested in what positions are we going to have in this new government of our Messiah. Now when God has vindicated him, now we are back into the kingdom of Israel. Jesus says, no, 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 I'm dealing with bigger things than the kingdom of Israel. And so, times and seasons. And now he says, concerning the times and seasons, you have no need for me to instruct you, because you know. So if they know, and there is no need for him to instruct them, how come that in Second Thessalonians 2, he's going to correct his instruction? Remember, in the previous chapter, he said, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command and the voice of archangel, the sound of the trumpet of God, then the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we, we who are alive, are going to be caught up together with them in the clouds and transformed. And in Second Thessalonians 2, he says, actually, we does not include me and you, because there is going to be a long period of falling away. So when they need assurance that their loved ones who died are not going to miss out on the second coming, he provides that assurance. And when people stop working on their fields, remember agriculture society, if you don't sow, you don't eat. When they stop working because Jesus is coming that soon, he provides corrective and says, 
mm, actually not that soon. <laughs> you better work, <laughs> so reap, because you are not going to eat. Not that soon. So what does it mean that you are in the know? Notice he uses the metaphor of the thief in the night. For you yourself know that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Yet, verse 4, you are not in the darkness, so that the day surprises you like a thief. If the thief sent you the message, I am coming between 3 a.m. and 4 a.m., you would be waiting there, up awake and waiting for him. But if you went to sleep because you were sure that nothing bad is going to happen, then you are surprised that the thief came when you did not expect the thief to come. So what is the message? What, what are we supposed to learn from this? On one hand, he says, you are in the know. What's the purpose of the metaphor? What is there about the suddenness, expectancy, and the surprise of the second coming? Because he says in verse 5, you are not in the darkness, you won't be surprised. 4 and 5, you won't be surprised by the second coming. Some people will be surprised, but you won't be. And of course, then we will go to the text, verse 6. So let us do not sleep. That was the proof text in the academy dormitory. When they said lights out by 10 o'clock, everybody needs to sleep. It was a proof text that that was not from the Lord. Because Paul says, let us not sleep, but be awake. And that fitted very much what we felt like doing. So let's go to Iris. So part of the darkness is that... The cultural narrative, the lies, you have to help yourself. There's no accountability. You have to do whatever is in your best interest. These lies, only when you buy into the fact that there is nothing in the end, that there's no accountability. Choices have no consequences. Yes, and that a relationship to God is not worthwhile to entertain. Only then... Such choices make sense. So the children of the light know for sure that Jesus is Lord, that he has redeemed them, and what is sure is that he will come again just as he has promised. So the assurance of the second coming, that is clear to them. In that sense, they are children of the light. What they don't know for sure is when this will be taking place. So there is a tension between being absolutely certain how the story ends. The end point for the believer is clearly revealed and clearly defined. It is that everything will go back under the authority of God and that Jesus will be faithful and he will deliver on the promise that his children can be where he is. But when exactly this will happen and unfold, that is not revealed. So there is something that happened on the cross, which is already accomplished. There is something, Jesus functions as a sacrifice. Then Jesus needs to function as a priest, which is something that is being done, which is not yet. So there is something which is already here, something which is not yet. And the Bible says he will function as a king when the enemies are put under his feet. And that part of the story is called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is terminus technicus that refers to a certain part of the story. So you have the creation, you have the fall, you have the promise. How does God deal with the fall? He makes a promise. He's going to restore. How does he deliver that promise? He delivers that through a community, and that community is a nation. Through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So it's a nation of Israel. Then comes the fulfillment in the person of Jesus, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. 
So something is already accomplished, but not all. Then comes the fulfillment through the community, but this time the community is not national, it's not ethnical, but it's ethical. It's everybody who wants to be part of that. Every kindred, nation, tongue, and people. Through you, all the families of the earth, all the tribes will be blessed. And then comes the day of the Lord. Remember how we sing, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. Because that's classical Christianity. When the soul gets to heaven, made it. Problem solved. Really? The second coming is not the solution of all the problems. There are still issues that need to be dealt with. What is the solution? The day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord includes the second coming, the millennium, the third coming, the destruction of the wicked, because certain questions need to be answered. Remember, before God's command was transgressed, violated, it was first misunderstood. And that's why God cannot only deal with violation, he needs to deal with misunderstanding. But on the folklore level, for so many Christians and Adventists, it all merges into the second coming. When we all get to heaven, finally, can't wait because this world is not a good place. Take me home. I don't enjoy being here. Now, see what happens on the southern border. You see what happens on the Schengen border or the channel and the dinghies. Some people feel that is the paradise and best place on the earth to be. Yet we say, oh, this is not a good place. I can't wait to go home. But the Bible says, actually, there is no other home than this planet. Because God deals with restoration. Before he deals with violation, or dealing with violation is not going to deal with the problem unless he deals with misunderstanding. And that's why it's not only the second coming when I get from the coldness of this planet to the warmth of heaven. I made it. Would be better food than Sherry's breakfast or supper. The fruit will be every month different, but it needs to be dealt with issues that were not resolved. The questions asked during the millennium. Is God going to be victorious because he will kill the enemy, destroy Satan? No, he needs to kill the lie. If he has not killed the lie, he has not won. Because a new Lucifer will spring up during the subsequent millennia and the whole problem starts again. And that's why the Bible speaks about the day of the Lord. When was the last time you heard a sermon on the day of the Lord? And a complex understanding of storyline and the narrative. That it's a story in seven stages. Creation, fall, promise through a nation, then reversal. Messiah comes, fulfillment of the promise through a community, the day of the Lord. And once the day of the Lord has answered all the questions regarding the character of God, and the prophets in the Old Testament speak about the day of the Lord, Joel and others, the day of the Lord is coming. What do they talk about? About judgment. But when all that is finished, then comes the last stage, number seven. And what is it? The new creation, creation of new heaven and new earth. And so you can see how the whole story makes sense because it's in seven different stages how many stages perfect (laughs) number okay yes so but can you see why is it important that paul in thessalonians speaks about the day of the lord and the day of the lord is a number of events stuck together that provide the answer to the things which were not answered in the previous story And that's why you and I live in the situation that something was accomplished on the cross already, but something is still not yet. And people still die of cancer when they are young. People are still discriminated and cry it's not fair because we live in the stage not yet. But we are waiting for heavens and earth where righteousness dwells, where these things will be redeemed, restored, put into the proper order. And that's why he speaks about the day of the Lord. Ashley.
You were asking about the light, the children of the light. Like To me, I see that as we have had the chance to experience that light and we are accountable to the experiences and gifts we've been given. At least that's how I see it. And there does become like a choice. Like he's telling them like, okay, you have seen, you have seen a different way, a different like path. And then it is your choice. What do you prefer? I'm not going to force you either way. But knowing human behavior, and again, from if anyone works in a field where behavior is compliance, whatever, (laughs) there's a big difference between knowledge and behavior. No direct connection. (laughs) Not a lot. (laughs) Maybe a small fragment, but there's so much more to it. So I think there is being enlightened, knowing, and then there's actually like applying and doing. And that's a lot harder. And that takes a lot more work and isn't something that comes, I think, naturally in a fallen world, but there's those choices. I like this other quote too. Sometimes the questions are complicated and the answers are simple. And so sometimes I think we do overcomplicate the story, but in reality, I think it comes down to, okay, God has given us a conscious. We know light when we see it. We know a good person that's humble and honest. And I think it's sometimes not as yeah complicated as we make it out to be because those fruits of the spirit, you will know them by their fruits. That is a lot more apparent than sometimes what is true, what is not. I think if you are familiar with God's character and you dwell on that and you're truly humbly seeking and searching, it doesn't have to be as confusing or scary as we make it out to be if you have that humble spirit and you've accepted the light that you've been given. Yeah, very good thinking. And the next two segments of the lesson will connect with that. The New Testament metaphor is walking in the light. Jesus says, you know the truth. If you walk in the truth, it will make you free. Livius? With respect to preparing, how do we prepare? Mm -hmm. The parable of the ten virgins came to mind. Both passages here have the subject of light, and people are sleeping. They're sleeping in both. And in the parable of the ten virgins, the way that five of them prepared is they brought more oil. They brought extra oil Mm -hmm. to trim their lamps, to get that light burning, keep that light going. I'm going to need some help with this, but this is where I was led here from reading Thessalonians. Good. So in Zechariah, the olive oil is a symbol of? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Now here's the question, how do you store up the Holy Spirit? The interesting thing is that both sets of virgins had the oil, so it's not the clear-cut solution that some have it, some don't. Both have it. Some have some extra When Jesus uh, ascended, he said, I will leave you another helper. I will give you another helper, the Holy Spirit. And he says that he will take what is mine and reveal it to you. So I think maybe the symbolic of bringing extra oil is connected with us allowing the Spirit to reveal things to us, to build up our inventory of God's character, if you will, of these kinds of things, uh, revelations of God speaking to us, being connected to have this bridge of communication open. And so when we sleep and maybe and don't do that, then that connection gets broken. That's kind of where I was going. Yes, yes. So you don't progress, you don't walk in the light. You fossilize and you don't want to move. And if you don't want to move, God can't help you because none of us has a perfect understanding and the light is dawning constantly on the path of the righteous. And if you refuse to keep moving forward, then you put yourself outside of God's circle of influence and help. Now the Holy Spirit, he will take from what is mine and share with you and give. Of course, he changes our dogmatics, our understanding of truth. 
But that's not the only work of the Holy Spirit, that He changes what we believe. Remember, we all do things that we do because of certain motivation. And if we are thoroughly sinful, that motivation is self-centered, is skewed. If I ask you, how did you become a believer? How did you come to Christ? All of us would have a story. I got at the end of my resources, at the end of my rope. I was in a certain predicament, in a certain situation, and this was the solution. And that's praiseworthy, hallelujah. Thank God for that. But God needs to do more than just changing my set of fundamental beliefs, my dogmatics. He needs to change why we do what we do, our motivation. There is more to religion than what you do. The question is, why do you do that? Remember, here it requires steadfast endurance, constant exposure to the work of the Holy Spirit, and that will be manifested in the keeping the commandments, but no full stop, because when you do the right thing, we need to ask, why do you do that? Because you can do the right thing for the wrong reason, with wrong motivation. And it needs to be as revealed as portrayed in the ministry of Jesus, who did the right thing because of the right motivation at the right time. And that is illustrated in the parable of ten virgins. The disciples say, so tell us, when is the last bus leaving for New Jerusalem so we can catch it? So if the temple is going to be destroyed, that's the end of the world, because they cannot imagine a world without a temple. How can you serve God? How can you worship God if you don't have a temple? Now, interestingly enough, under Nebuchadnezzar, they did not have a temple, and God taught them that you can serve God as well in Babylon as you did in Jerusalem, but obviously they didn't learn the lesson. Surprise, surprise. So when Jesus says, and by the way, everything that you see here is going to be destroyed, they say, that's the end of the world. So tell us, how do we prepare so that you don't catch us unaware? And Jesus says, I'm not trying to catch you unaware, but if you think along the lines, how do I catch the last bus to New Jerusalem? You are going to miss it. Because you are interested in, how can I be the last one to get through the gate? You know what I am interested in? Do you care about someone else? Let me tell you a story. There was a wedding. And you know, at the Middle East wedding in first century, who is the center of attention? Everything is about the bridegroom. Since then, people got wiser, and they discovered that they get more out of the wedding if they concentrate on the bride, not the bridegroom. As my mom used to say, if the bridegroom looks a little bit better than the the devil, it's okay, that will do. So they concentrate on the bride nowadays, but in those days, they concentrate on the bridegroom. And five of them are thinking, the good news is, the gospel is that we are going to the wedding, that we were chosen, we can be there. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. And so they made sure that we get to the wedding. By the way, completely selfish behavior. Good news is about me, 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 that I will be at the wedding. I got invited of all the people, I will be there. Completely selfish behavior. And the other five say, isn't that amazing that the whole village can go to the wedding and see the bridegroom? Let's make sure that the procession is well lit off and everybody can see the bridegroom. So let's take some extra oil so that everybody can see the bridegroom. Completely unselfish behavior, thinking of others. And Jesus does what he did with the story of rich man and Lazarus. No, the red riding hood went into the forest, and you know what happened? And the red riding hood ate the wolf. What does he do? He switches the ends and says, those who were thinking of themselves didn't get there. Those who were thinking of others, they got there. 
Because I am thinking, has the Holy Spirit transformed your motivation? Paul is persecuting the saints because going to Damascus will look impressive on his CV. It's no business in Damascus, but he does that because he's zealous for his CV and to make sure he impresses his superiors with what he does. And Jesus meets him and says, we need to do some tweaking here. Yes, they did some tweaking in his fundamental beliefs, but the most important tweaking was what? Why do we do what we do? You knocked me off my horse? That means you are alive. And if you are alive and I did this, remember Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I didn't persecute you, I persecuted your disciples. But whoever touches you touches the apple of my eye. Why do you persecute me? Oh, if this is what I did to you, you could have done worse things to me than knock me off my horse. Yet you didn't do. And that's why he writes in Romans 14, let everybody be convinced in their own mind. Because we cannot use sword, we cannot use force to impose good things on people. That's not how God works. The Holy Spirit needs to change the motivation, not only your fundamental beliefs. Why do you do what you do? All right, let's go to Julie. Okay, so I'm going back to this text about the sleeping and all that. The beautiful thing about metaphors is that they use a much higher intelligence and you can get all sorts of wonderful messages from them. One of the challenges with metaphors is that you can say something and everybody sits there and agrees, but everybody's thinking it means something different. And so we all are great unity, but is it real unity? So these people are hearing this message from Paul and they're like, yeah, we do know. We know about the second coming. He's coming right now. So they go out and they stop working in the fields, like you said, and they start stashing up all this food for the great time of trouble and they they go out and live in the country. And he says, well, that's not exactly what I meant because they think it's imminent, right? So he said, that's not exactly what I meant. And he progresses to go on and he uses another metaphor. But So it's hard to say what exactly is he meaning by sleep. And for a people whose major message, I believe God's people's message, one of the great messages is rest. And this concept of not sleeping is a little bit challenging. What does it mean to be sober? What does it mean to stay awake? And I really appreciate what you were saying about the fact that it's a constant regrouping, a rechanging of your thinking of God actually leading you in a direction, because actually I was thinking that earlier. And more than that, this not resting is, is avoiding the social drift. It's avoiding the tendency to just go with whatever flows because now we have this bigger picture. We have this beautiful picture of what Jesus did of God. And then that gets into living a selfless life. And it's kind of like when I drive, I often get sleepy and I have to try to stay awake. And I guess I should pull over, but I've had so much sleepiness with driving over my life that I would be pulling over. I have done this, pulled over every five minutes at times. So you're banging on your face, you're opening the window. Staying awake is not easy. And I do believe that God brings us into rest in our relationship with him. But there is this element of having to work to constantly regroup our thinking what I'm doing right now isn't kind. Maybe I want to look at that wonderful God who's compassionate, merciful, and forgiving and live like that. Constantly regrouping about what I'm doing, constantly regrouping about not going off with whatever the crowd is doing. Uh, these are all, I think, part of the sober thing, the waiting for Christ, the looking at this bigger picture of although this world is ultimately our home, right now it's not because it's all messed up. And to think everything's fine is a problem. So it's kind of breaking down. What does he mean by this staying awake? I think these are all elements we're pulling out here. You know how my grandpa solved the problem? Before he went to bed, he always prayed, and Lord, make me awake when you come. <laughs> and I asked him, Grandpa, what's that? He said, we need to be awake, but I need to go to sleep now. So if I say the prayer before I go to bed, <laughs> that it counts as if I was awake. Ingenious. Dan. 
as we all know, you rarely hear sermons about the second coming anymore. When I was young, at least once a month or twice a month you heard about. And I think it's because we have set, like you said, these arbitrary goals, and they never seem to work out. But I would like to sort of say how one might continue to be active and enthusiastic about the idea that Christ will come. And I'd like to illustrate this with a project that Alyssa and I are working on right now. We're trying to put together a grant, and there's someone in there that keeps giving us more material to read on the subject. And so I read, and some articles are really good, and I'm sitting there thinking, how does this apply to this? How do I modify this? And how does this make my overall hypothesis better? And it's exciting. You know, to me, I find that really exciting because my ideas on the subject are growing week by week, and my association with that idea to psychology, to education, to all kinds of things is expanding. And so it's exciting. And I think that the same thing would happen whenever I study a subject in the Bible. The more I look at it, the more I read about it, the more excited I get about it, and the more awake I get. I think the reason why we're sleepy and why we don't think about these things is because we we aren't studying. We aren't expanding our knowledge bases. We aren't looking at connections that exist there. Just the excitement that someone felt in connecting Exodus with Revelation. There are many other connections that you can make to Revelation. That's exciting. I think that's how the Holy Spirit keeps us awake, I think, is if we're willing to spend the time in the effort to make those connections. That's how we get the Spirit to put in our lamps. That is how we keep awake. And who cares if God comes tomorrow? a year from now or 10 years from now. The road that we're on as we grow can be equally exciting next week, next month, a year from now, and one can be awake along the whole path if we are willing to keep growing. Sherry, what would you think if somebody told you in 1972 that study tapes will be here 50 years later? Yeah, but let's not make it only cerebral. In this audience, we have a group of people who are where they are in life because they keep learning and they have jobs that require constant updating and continuing education. But do you think that if you have all the position, power, authority, if you have all the goodies, are you going to look forward to the second coming? If you are on the receiving end of mistreatment, injustice, oppression, are you going to look forward to the second coming? So maybe the reason why we are sleepy is because we already achieved the American dream or we live in a sort of paradise. I used to joke about Ben Maxson, who was the stewardship director at the General Conference. When he retired, he went to live in paradise. He was the only person who went from the GC to paradise. So if you have everything okay, then you don't need to look forward to the second coming. But imagine that throughout the centuries, most people have been on the receiving end, that they did not think, what a wonderful life this is, I enjoy it every moment. And for them, looking forward to the second coming was a blessed hope. So it's more than just the excitement of learning new things and connecting the dots. Definitely, it's important because that's how God broadens our perspective, our horizons. But it's more than that. Let's go to Iris. There is excitement in studying the scriptures and going deep and understanding more. But at the same time, I think what also keeps me awake or can keep us awake is to keep our eyes on where is God at work in this world right now? Where can I see his, his footprints? Where is he at work in the environment where he has placed me? Where is he inviting me to join him at his work? And I think then the focus is not so much on how soon is soon, but really what is God doing and how does he want to use me 
How can I participate in what yes. God is doing now? And I, I think to me that is something that keeps the hope alive. I'm, I have a group of people with whom I pray every week and much of our sharing is really how have we experienced God in this week at work. And that approach has sensitized me to a greater level of awareness about God in my life. So I think for sure the Holy Spirit's work in us is a process of learning and unlearning and a process of helping us to know God better on a personal level so that when he then does prompt us, we recognize his voice and respond to it. And be collaborators with him in the moving the story forward. So we said it before, we have a lot to say about God's work in us, sanctification. How do you prepare for the final crisis? Most of that would be God's work in us. How good I need to be in order to pass the investigative judgment. We have a lot to say th about God's work through us. That's evangelism. How do you prepare for the final crisis? You need to tell your neighbor. You need to distribute the pamphlets or the books. Okay? But we are mostly oblivious to God's work around us. Because he has not given up on this world. We just think it's a bad place. But this is my father's world. And the angel is descending with great glory and the Holy Spirit is still working. He has not given up on those people that we have given up on that we will discuss in another session. <laughs> Because he still works on them. And how I get in touch and connected with that. And we need to connect that with John 8, 31. You know the truth. And the truth will make you free. You will see the excitement of being a small cog in the bigger story that God can use a person like you and me. Can you believe it? That he can use people like us to move it forward. Ashley and then Julie. So part of what I hear you saying is reminding us of how dangerous it is, especially I think in our first world where it's so easy to be comfortable. It's so easy to be sleepy and just go along. I think in a practical sense, it's so crucial to, when you have the choice, we have to intentionally challenge ourselves when we're so privileged like we are here. And part of that, I think, is why it's so important to be part of community and to be surrounded by differing views and opinions. And I think that need for community is so like intrinsic to what it means to be human. And I think, yeah, the Bible does mention that. But yeah, in our modern day and age, it is, it is very, very easy to be sleepy. And I think that's a, a huge need. And it's hard to motivate ourselves to get out of that, which reminds me of like story of the rich man and how hard it's again to help. Yeah. <laughs> Completely oblivious what's going behind his gate. Right, right. And, but if you're not doing that, if you're not intentionally like challenging yourselves, Dan could speak to this with neurology. Like, if you're not intentionally challenging your brain, if you don't use it, you lose it. <laughs> yeah. So, that's probably one of the hardest things for us in, in this country to do because we do have the choice to avoid differing opinions. We can like close ourselves off, become little islands, be what we think is like independent. But I think it almost puts us at more danger and it's even more dangerous because we don't realize it. And so if we're not being, again, challenged, and, and part of that being challenged is being put up against our egos. <laughs> and that is a vulnerable place to be in it. Yeah. So, so struggling with that when you don't necessarily like have to is, is really hard. But I think it's so important because otherwise, I think you do fall down that path of the subtle compromises of falling away without really realizing it until, I guess, like ultimately the day of judgment comes and you're like, oops, I didn't realize what I was doing this whole time and look where I ended up. But I think I told the story on Pinal already. I was visiting Tromsø up north in Norway, 
very close to the polar circle and there was an exhibition of seals exercise and one of the thing is that even when the facility is closed at 11 o'clock they still perform and they say we have to do it if they don't have mental activity stimulation they will just deteriorate and die so regardless whether the visitors are there to pay for the show and jumping and exhibition and all that doesn't matter it's this time we are doing it because their brains need it if we don't do it even they can't survive you think oh, how much more it's easy to be just on your own and run your ideas in a circle and then you are wonderfully right nobody disturbs your peace and opposes you as the guy said i have given up on reading the books because i discovered that they take my thoughts away from myself and that's why god sends you to community so what does it mean that you know the truth and the truth will make you free god's intention is going to send difficult people into your life because he's more interested in your growth than in your comfort and so if you don't have any difficult people in your life i suggest you talk to a pastor because pastors keep the list of people they will assign you someone so what does it mean you know the truth and the truth will make you free from this Thessalonians Jesus says you know the truth what is he talking about is he talking 2 plus 3 equals 5 no so what is he talking about okay himself but anybody here has a perfect understanding of truth you see the problem is you judge other people on the basis of your understanding of truth and if you tell people you know the truth they can either become hypercritical and judgmental why because they are going to evaluate they are going to judge everybody on the basis of their understanding of truth and that's why as ashley said god needs to send you to a community that's why he makes sure there will be some difficult people in your life why so that your understanding of truth gets challenged you know the truth and the truth will make you free but first it needs to make you miserable cannot make you free without making you miserable because we have many things to learn many many to unlearn and that's why the new testament model is keep walking in truth in learning in stimulation and you get that in the community where you discover that not everybody is wired the way i am my wife usually says to me daniel you are the only one who understood what you wanted to say but it's so clear yes clear in your mind but not to anybody else so say it now without looking at the screen say it to me what you wanted to say so i read it and say isn't that clear yeah because you have been thinking about it for a long time but not to anybody else so what does it mean that if you don't keep walking if you don't keep changing if you don't keep adjusting your understanding of truth you are not going to be free you will be a prisoner of your own thoughts and your own world and that's why tuesday's lesson reformation needs to continue why because revelation 18:4 says come out of her my people where are god's people in babylon now the moment you start thinking but we are the remnant we are not in babylon that's where the trouble starts because according to revelation 18:4 where are god's people in babylon and remember the second angel's message when we discussed it there is a babylonian quotient when you discuss intelligence the scientists tell you it's such a complex thing that we cannot describe what is intelligence clearly simply it's complex and that's why we have intelligence quotient that we look at different aspects which word does not fit if you take this cube and move it this way what it will look like and you will have all these different things that you need to perform so that somehow they look at different aspects of brain functioning and 
come up with a number, which is IQ number, because it's a complex thing. So Babylon is a BQ, Babylonian quotient, and you constantly need to be coming out of Babylonian thinking, using your achievement to your glory. Isn't this the great Babylon that I have built? Isn't this the great church where there is no error? Where do these people are? They still don't get it. So let's store up the teen food. Let's get away from them so they don't disturb our thinking. Let's listen only to our radio and TV station. Let's read only our books so that no strange idea crosses our mind or screen because it disturbs our inner peace. That's not continuing reformation. That's not continuing coming out of Babylon. And now that brings us to the exousia, the authority. Glorious being lights up the whole earth and that the enlightenment reveals the wonderful character of God, reveals, as we said earlier, the evil in the world, the things that are not, that have been in the darkness. So my question is, that's a beautiful, again, it's like a metaphor, it's an analogy. What does it really mean? And how in the world can the whole world be lit up? And I'm not talking about we're going out by radio to all the whole world. I'm not talking about that right now. I'm talking about how do people suddenly become so enlightened? And it's very sudden. It looks very sudden here, at least the way it appears, that it suddenly comes and lights up and then makes this appeal for everybody to get out of a particular type of thinking or a particular way of living. And I think about the history you've gone through, the history of redemption. When Christ died, the universe was enlightened. The whole universe was enlightened by what Christ did. But we've had that history. What is it going to take to enlighten us here, our little blind planet Earth, to the glory of God and to the nature of this darkness that has been around us. That's my big burning question. I didn't want to miss that before we finished. So can you see a scenario that you do something in your little corner, like a Bahamas headquarter of your private company, and within 24 hours, it's spread all over the planet. It illuminates the world, and you go from 26 billion empire to ruining the lives of million people, one million people who have the deposits. And you say, I had a bad month. I did not know, mm, actually. The investigators say, no, no, you had a secret code in your software to siphon the deposits into your other company, so you were not honest. Can you see that somebody does something genuinely altruistic, and the whole world, the spotlight is on God's children, and people say, wow, a human nature would not respond this way. This must be Holy Spirit at work. Because the human nature is, if you get big money, a nice lifestyle, you are going to do whatever it takes for you to keep your lifestyle, and you don't care that you ruin the lives of millions of people who trusted you with their money. And, and that's just an example from the last few weeks, what's happening in our world. Julie, can you see how what you do in your little corner can throw light for someone living in Zimbabwe and say, wow. To use the words of Ellen White, that in the last days, the work will not go by argumentation and conviction, but by people saying, wow, if this is what religion means to you, did for you, I need that in my life. I don't have that in my life. That people say, yeah, I want that in my life. I identify with this. And thanks to the social media and the world in which we live, can you see the whole world being enlightened? I guess I'm just thinking the people of God are all over the place. They're scattered everywhere. And they're leaving little impression. They're doing things. And the story of Jesus has been out there. And this beautiful picture of who he is. And many people who are not active Christians admire Jesus and who he is. 
But what would it take to turn the tide that much? I mean, all of this has been going on. There's all these people living these Christ-like lives and making sacrifices constantly. But what would it take to make that big? I know social media can make a difference and all this, and you're right, it can. But I'm just trying to imagine what it is that makes that difference so that it suddenly motivates people who have been living the status quo to suddenly come out of her, come out of this whole way of thinking. It could take a social environment of desperation, of total pessimism that we as humanity cannot solve our problems, desperation, where suddenly you are thrown into the spotlight is on some people here and there and there, and you see their genuine, altruistic, loving, kind behavior, and you say, wow, that's the way forward. That's what I want in my life. And I think in 2023... We can understand and imagine that much better than in 1850 or 63, when in May in Michigan, representatives of a handful of delegates from six countries started the Seventh-day Adventist Church. How the spotlight can be brought on people with genuine love. Lucas, you had your hand up, so let's go to you. Okay, so basically, when it comes to being awake and like seeing truth, it seems to me that over the course of history, of course, the devil has always been trying to distract from God's character and his love. And so he's done that in different ways. It used to be that, and I know this still happens in certain places in the world because he doesn't have one tactic, but at least it used to be that he would persecute and that he would kind of like try and terrorize and scare people away from their faith. And that's where like the whole martyrs there was all these people, but it almost seemed like that solidified people's faith. And so now in our modern world, he's using like all these deceptions of trying to distract us from truth. And so I guess when we talk about what it means to be in the know, it's that we can kind of see through those lies, that we can kind of see through the allure of riches, of fame, and that we can see through that and stay focused on God and his character and his purpose for our lives. And you can see through those lies, not only because you can process it intellectually, praise the Lord for those who can, and they have certainly an advantage, but you can also see through it because you can process it on an experiential level. As was mentioned in April, so when this is discussed, it will be June. In April, it will be 30 years since Vaco, Texas, fiasco. And this week, one of the pastors was saying to me that he talked to one of his dear sisters, they in Manchester, and she looked at him and said, I don't like it. Jesus isn't in it. And he said, she knew nothing about the exegesis and hermeneutics of Revelation, but she said, I don't like it. I don't see Jesus in this. So you don't need to have a PhD in New Testament exegesis of apocalyptic literature to say, there's something fishy about this. I'm not going to go with this. Yeah, well said. Olivius? So, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Truth is another name for God, right? So, you shall know God, and he will set you free. And that's really in this context of this message here of what's happening with this angel. It says, this angel, the earth was made bright with his glory. That's what's happening here with the 144,000 that are sealed. They are proclaiming this message. They declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there's no unrighteousness in him. So when they declare this, people are making a decision. Yes, they believe this or no, they don't. I don't care. And so this process of the earth being made bright with his glory, I think maybe is a metaphor for the effect of the message that's going out. And it's a step-by-step process. And the closer you are to God, the more sensitive you are to what he's telling you, how he's using you, 
And the more indifferent you are, the less sensitive you become until one day you reach the stage you say, I don't care. Whatever happens, I will do what I will do. I don't care. And then what happens? Your destiny is set. And Almighty God of the universe cannot help you to move you because the consequences of your patterns of thinking. Suddenly evidence doesn't mean anything. Don't confuse me with facts. My mind is set. Can you see how patterns of thinking set you in a direction so that if you consistently say no to God, no, 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 ultimately he says, I can't help you. I have to give you up. There's nothing I can do. And it works both ways. So that's why the earth being enlightened is a step-by-step process in which you need to walk in that light constantly because none of us has a perfect understanding of truth. Iris, and then we'll start reading in conclusion. We know what it looks like when you have a big light on a stage and all of a sudden that dark stage is light flooded. And when we read this text, maybe we think that something like that should happen. The stage is dark, all of a sudden this light floods and there is this full illumination. But is it also possible in light of the Holy Spirit's work that we have talked about and in light of the labor pain of the last days, We see this, for example, in Ukraine, where just this year, a country that had a fair amount of stability, a fair amount of wealth and growing. And recently, a group of Ukrainians were here at Loma Linda, and they talked to us about how God is at work, has been at work through these healthcare professionals who flexed, who see now that they have to engage totally different ways of working in their community. In the middle of war, bringing food into the city, taking people out of the city, bringing food in and touching one life at a time. And people who before were numb and disinterested and secular and not interested in God, All of a sudden, everything has changed. Nothing is the way it used to be before February 24. All of a sudden, there's a thirst and a hunger, not only for bread and water and for warmness, but there's a hunger for meaning, for where is God? Is there a God? And questions are being asked. And it's not necessarily that light flooding the stage, but little lamps all of a sudden, one life at a time. And I don't know what the full interpretation of this looks like, Julie, but I guess very often we feel like it's very mundane what we do. But I believe if we stay in that connection with the Holy Spirit, if we stay in that connection with God, He keeps working through us. And maybe at some point things will take off and that which God has been sharing with the world under the circumstances of the pressures of the last time. It's a God thing. It's a God thing. But I think let's not lose hope that the same God who started the Christian church, who worked through very, very flawed human beings, but he set up the Christian church. He is at work in your life and in my life today, and he is able to reveal himself in a powerful way at the end of time. And until that happens, whether or not we realize it, whether or not we see results, let's just stay in that posture of faithfulness, in that posture of faith, embracing God's call on our lives today. And keep walking in the truth. Keep moving forward. Because if you are stuck, if you fossilize, then how can God 
help you? How can he work through you? But as long as you keep moving forward, he can use even the mistakes, the partial understanding to be a blessing to someone else. So when people need assurance that your dead ones will not miss out on the second coming, Paul says, comfort each other with these words. When they misunderstand those words, he says in his second letter, let me correct that, let me add something else. And this is also coming from God. Keep walking in the truth. Keep moving forward. Because when you get stuck, none of us has a perfect understanding, then you are doing more damage than good. Because the reformation needs to continue. The light needs to be constantly illuminating the planet. God has not closed the shop. The Holy Spirit is still available. He's still at work. Isaiah 14.12. Let's take you back before the creation of the world. In heaven with all the angels. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. So, on the background of the Babylonian king, Isaiah is talking about a bigger rebellion that took place in heaven. So, he's talking about a carrier of life, Lux Ferrier, Lucifer, and he's called Morning Star. Let's read Revelation 22.16. It is I, Jesus, who sent my angel to you with this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David. The bright morning star. So he's the morning star? Jesus. So you have this throne of God, and on one hand, one side, is morning star. On the other side, is morning star. And God says, you worship this one, and you don't worship that one. And the angels have to make a choice between two morning stars. How do you make the choice? How do you determine? One is covering angel, the other is archangel. Do you pull a feather out of the wing, put it on the microscope, and say, yep, this one is created being, this one is God from eternity. Can you do it with your senses, with your established procedures? But the angels have to make a choice between two options, one morning star, the other morning star. You worship one, but you don't worship the other one. Okay, let's go to Genesis 2. And one third made wrong choice, and the rebellion takes place in heaven, and the consequences are what they are. But to sort that out, God creates a unique order of beings by gender, as male and female, who were not part of the problem, but they can make a contribution to the solution. And what happens then in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 2, verse 9? Out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So fast forward, Adam and Eve, the Garden of Eden, there are two trees. There is a tree of life, there is a tree of knowledge of good and evil. God says, you eat from this one, you don't eat from that one. How do you make the choice? Now, if on one is a wonderful mango, and on the other is a rotten pear, you can make the choice on the basis, it seemed good to me. <laughs> no? on the basis of your senses and your established procedures. But if God says, if you eat from this one, you express your dependence on me as the creator of life. But if you eat from the other one, you are not eating because you are hungry. You are telling me you are not the first and foremost in our lives anymore. So Adam and Eve need to make a choice between two trees. Fast forward, Revelation 14, three angels' message. God says, the angel descends from heaven with increasing glory and authority, and the whole earth is enlightened by that. 
and into the darkness of deception and coercion and abuse of authority and power, God brings a light of his character. And everybody needs to make a choice. Two angels, two trees, two dot, dot, dot. You fill it out. The question is, how do you make the choice? And you know what is the answer? The answer is, have you learned to listen to his voice? Do you know his character? Do you trust him? You can be sure in the world of constant options and rebellion, somebody is going to tell you, he is limiting your choice, he's not your friend, he's not on your side. But you can say, I know the voice. When the wolf is pounding the door with little goats, I am your mother, open the door. You can say, that's not the voice of our mother. That's the voice of the evil wolf. Do you see the significance of the three angels' message? One message. Eternal gospel. About God's character. About God who can be trusted. About God who has amazing love, unconditional grace, endless patience, but saying, remember, ideas have consequences. Your choices set your character in a certain way. And if you go in a certain direction, even I can't help you. And that's what Three Angels' message is all about, about eternal consequences of the choices that we make. But how do we present it in a way that the big picture is preserved and God's loving character illuminates the whole earth? And people say, this is our Lord, we have been waiting for him. This is God who we want to serve for all eternity because he preserves our individuality, he preserves our freedom. In him we develop the best that he put in us by creating us in his image. Let's pray. Our dear Lord, we are amazed the length you would go to reveal yourself and make clear what are the choices, what are the consequences, and how much you desire us to be in that crowd of redeemed who are going to glorify you and worship you all eternity. Forgive us that so often we presented these messages as a form of threat or when they created a version against you and who you are, so that people don't want to have anything to do either with you, the church, or those who preach that. And help us to understand it better, and most of all, to live it out in our own lives in such a way that your character becomes attractive to people who don't know you yet, and they can see that you are still offering something that this world cannot offer. And we thank you for that, in Jesus' name. Amen.